0: It is the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. One year ago, uh, the the Russians knew they were going to sweep through Ukraine, take it over, claim it. Uh, that NATO was just going to say, you know, like we did in Crimea. Crimea, what the heck? You know, it's just what it is—the area we live. It isn't worth the fight. Instead, just the opposite happened, right? Um, the Ukrainian people, and, and we're going to talk about NATO's involvement. We're going to talk about NATO's support. We're going to talk about how bipartisan some of that support has been, uh, all of that. But the truth of the matter is the Ukrainian people are what we need to celebrate one year later. Uh, Carrie Oderman is a native North Dakotan. Uh, she is, and she made it to the the upper levels of journalism in Kiev. Uh, She was a TV anchor there, uh, many times covering President Zelensky uh, on state-run Ukrainian TV. And then next thing she knew, she had to pack up her family and go to Germany uh, just to make sure her family survived. Uh, She joins us right now. Carrie, it is so good to have you back on. How you been?
1: I've been good. Thanks for having me back on and thanks for keeping talking about Ukraine because it's still really important.
0: The Ukrainian flag still flies at the top of my hill, right underneath the US flag, and I'm pretty proud of that. So let let me let me ask you this. When when all of this went down a year ago, and then you start seeing things going like this and this and this, you start making predeterminations, or at least I did, of what was gonna happen. What did you think then And what is different now?
1: Well, I was pretty sure that the invasion wasn't going to happen like so many people. Well, we know I was wrong. And we know a lot of people were wrong. Then I know Vladimir Putin thought that he was going to stroll into Kiev and take over the city after three days. We know that didn't happen. And... When all of these unexpected things didn't turn out like they were supposed to, then there was optimism. Um, There were the stories at the beginning of uh, the invasion of the resilience of the Ukrainians, of almost partisan-like behavior of people in villages. There were really great stories about like the ghost of Kiev, um, a fighter jet pilot that was defending the city. There were... um, (laughs) The story of the grandma that knocked the drone down with a jar of tomatoes. And she was interviewed worldwide. And she kept saying it was tomatoes, not pickles. That was the most (laughs) important thing. There were these surprising stories of of the the 40-something-year-old mom that bought a hunting rifle and went to be a sniper on the front. There were these stories that I thought, okay, it's going to be hard to make predictions here about what happens. And um, I, I had skin in the game. Um, there were some sad things that happened too. One of my colleagues, his body was found um, north of Kiev in Bucha after the Russians were pushed back, and that's when I stopped really doing basically what I'm doing for you today. Um, with you, it's always kind of like calling home being a native North Dakotan and talking about what I lived for, what I lived through. But you know, I was doing lives for internet, you know, TV stations, and I, I couldn't do it anymore, because I I couldn't, um, I couldn't do this both side yeah. you're, you're supposed to be neutral. And it was I don't know if I can be neutral here. For me, it's really clear cut.
0: It, and, and that is a line. I mean, you're a journalist. I mean, that's what you're trained to do. That's what you were very good at. And that's why you were doing what you were doing. But it, I don't know how you could. I mean, they took away your home. They 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 took away your, your livelihood. They took away uh, your friends. They. I don't know how you could be neutral in this.
1: Yeah, Um it's it's tough, and this is why I took a step back, and I just said, you know, I, I'm not going to go on TV talking about Ukraine. I do a lot of political education things. I do I do a lot of explainer videos. I I can break things down for people. But to really expect me to talk about, for instance, today, a lot of the coverage in Europe and, you know, I'm about eight hours ahead of you. There's been like there's going to be in the United States today a lot of one year after the war. Yeah. And I'm disappointed in some of the coverage because there's doing there. There's a lot of both sides. And Russia is a big country and there are lots of Russians But today should be a day where Ukrainians have their voice heard more.
0: Kerry, you know uh, the U.S. government as well as anyone that is involved with or or speaks to Ukrainians every day. And so there's a lot of of, uh, that type of attitude in the U.S. government as well. That being said, it hasn't prevailed. It has not prevailed. Uh, The the people that support Ukraine are still there from both sides of the aisle, despite a certain minority that's pushing it. What does that mean to the Ukrainian people? What does that mean to Ukraine itself?
1: I think it means a lot. And if you go back to think November when Kevin McCarthy was talking about not having a blank check for Ukraine, that was um, a really poor choice of words, and it showed a lot of poor understanding of how US government and US government support works. Um, I do a lot with developmental aid. I know um, how it works. I know how the US government and their people overseas uh, make sure that aid gets spent properly. And there's not been buckets of cash sent to Ukraine. Things are done very carefully because Ukraine did have a problem with corruption in the past, part of its Soviet Mm -hmm. legacy, and it's made huge strides. And in, in January, there was a big shakeup in the Ukrainian cabinet because there was suspicion of corruption. And Zelensky's not willing to risk any aid, especially not military material, falling in the wrong hands. So there's... There's a misunderstanding by some politicians in the United States, first of all, how the United States government works, actually. And then it comes down to this partisanship. And it's really interesting because since this whole Trump thing in the United States happened, and I do have to qualify. Joel, you know, I haven't lived in the States for over 20 years. I'm kind of on the sidelines here watching from a distance. And um, there's been a real shift in U.S. politics. We all know about the tribalism. But we've got a topic here where there, there is a clear, in my opinion, right and wrong. And that you know the party of Ronald Reagan would now be supporting um, Vladimir Putin in some ways is such a strange and hard pivot yeah. to be able to digest. And, and you know, there, in, there are politicians- in, fairness, in fairness
0: to that party, I think that the people that, that are doing that ronald reagan would want in his party the the republican party he built i i I truly believe that uh carrie oderman is our guest uh, from belfield uh and she's she's homegrown potatoes to us uh and yet she finds herself in germany carrie what hang on with me for a little bit longer i i I need to hang on whether you want to quit or not we're hanging on to you it's the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Obviously, we're vested. We're in. Some might say that we're allowing the Ukrainian people to be our proxies in a war against Russia. Um, I think some of that argument is actually quite valid, quite true. And Carrie Oderman from Belfield originally, a TV anchor in Ukraine, now living in Germany for the safety of her family. Uh, Carrie, I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk because oftentimes the, the focus here in the U.S. has been on what the us and nato has done for ukraine and i'm i'm curious what your perspective is the other way because we now know about norway and sweden and the expansion of nato and what's the perception about what uh ukraine has done for nato
1: well there's the old joke that people don't want to join nato anymore that they nato wants to join ukraine because this has really been a proving ground um the 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 farm fields of eastern Ukraine have given an opportunity to test a lot of modern weaponry. I mean, I talked to a lot of smart people about things like drones and the developments in Ukraine about drone use. The U.S. and NATO have a much better understanding about how drones are going to be used in modern warf- warfare. And I'm not just talking about air drones. You know, they had those boat drones that were secret until about October when um, debris started washing up on uh, in in the 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 sea there by odessa so nato has learned a lot and ukraine was striving to be a member of nato and they really prioritize something called interoperability everyone knows when you travel to europe you need new plugs and you can imagine that military stuff is the same thing things have to fit together if you're going to work together and military advisors um, said to ukraine you want to join nato you got to get ready and you got to make sure that when the time comes you're already up to speed The strategy Ukraine used to try to get into NATO was to act like they were already in NATO. They did huge reforms within their military. They updated, you know, these Soviet structures where there was uh, op- options for lots of corruption. Corruption that we then saw in a lot of things early in the war, because, you know, there were those convoys coming down from Belarus towards Kiev that were just stopped, if you remember, last February and March. And that's because nobody had serviced the tires in 30 years from, you know, the, the old Soviet material that the Russian government then took over after the, um, the Soviet Union broke apart. And Those posts, those those old Soviet structures were then um, thrown out and new modern military structures were brought in. And there were always friends and partners of Ukraine doing training in Ukraine. But now NATO has really been able to see how their equipment works. And this is important for whatever kind of adversary NATO is going to be up against they, they've actually had a chance to see how their weapons work in the field.
0: How, how about the, the the parallels in history? You know, oftentimes uh, the invasion of Ukraine is compared to uh, Poland uh, in World War II and other. I mean, do, does, do the Ukrainian people look at it as, hey, we're stopping something that could get way bigger here?
1: Well, not only the Ukrainians see that, but the Poles recognize that too. A very closed-off society that's opened its borders for Ukraine and has done probably more for the refugees than any other country because it's the main area that people have to pass through. This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, I was helping somebody edit a book about the the months, the the past 13, 14 months. And Whenever you think about World War II, you ask some of the same questions. Well, didn't people see this coming? Didn't what would I have done um, when when the Holocaust started? Why why were uh, people of of Jewish descent or, or other victims of the Holocaust? Why why did they stick around? And um, watching, um, there's parallels there too, not just to military movement and and countries being considered buffers, but also how uh, people reacted at the beginning of the war. And it's interesting to look back at some of some things journalists were writing in 1938, 1940 and the things journalists were writing last January. And again, then in February and March last year. So,
0: When you see, because all of us now, one year upon this, are going to be looking at, is this going to be, you know, a year from now, or we're going to be saying two years or three years or four years. You know, you and I raised this question before uh, when we've had these conversations. What do you see as the thing that would make the Ukrainian people say, okay, uh, we won this, but we're willing to?
1: negotiations always are a reflection of what's happening on the battlefield. And Ukraine has done extremely well, or at least that's the impression a majority of people have, that they've done extremely well. There's no need for them to negotiate right now. There's going to be a terrible, I don't want to call it a sweet spot because it's a very bitter situation when the parties involved, Russia, Ukraine, and Ukraine's partners and allies, refuse or they just run out of metal. They run out of metal. And then there's going to be the question of when Ukraine runs out of soldiers.
0: Well, Carrie, uh, I could do this all day and we will another day, get back here so you can guest host and people can call in and talk to you more. Originally from Belfield, uh, Carrie Oderman, keep your family safe. Okay. Thank you. You bet. Uh, just one of those folks, uh, just uh, in my opinion, quite brilliant and uh somebody who really understands what's going on in that area. When we come back, Dr. Thomas Ambrosio is going to join us. Now, he's a professor of political science at NDSU. One of the things about Dr. Ambrosio that, uh, that I want to make reference to is, like any of this, we've made predictions, right? We've said this is going to happen, then that might happen, and this might happen. Some of that has been incredibly wrong. I mean, it has. As, as as Carrie pointed out, there was a reason to be suspect in the beginning of uh, President Zelensky. Now, you know what? Zelensky, I mean, now you know what? We love him. We love him. We'll visit with Thomas Ambrosio right after this.
1: The swing, you should have heard
0: Thank God you're in the room, Abby. You want to know why? Why? Because I'm a little outnumbered here. I've got Dr. Carrie Orderman with me. I've got Dr. Thomas Ambrosio with me, and I'm the only one that just played doctor. So, hey. You (laughs) You went to med school for uh, a week? I just feel like, you know, I I was in med school for two weeks, and then I switched to pre-law.
1: It was two weeks.
0: Not med school. I was (laughs) pre-med. And then I decided, you know, this isn't for me. It's, it Shock. was the frogs that pushed it over the top. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Thomas Ambrosio joins us right now. Doctor, good to have you back on News and Views. Glad to be
2: here. You've I've, got unfortunately a Unfortunately, on an anniversary like this, though, Yeah, I, know. I never come here for good stuff. I, yeah,
0: you do. I mean, you, you know, a while back when when we were seeing such progress by the Ukrainian people, I remember talking to you. That's true. And, and you coming in and saying, okay, here's what I'm seeing from afar. And, and so, th- th- to me, this one-year anniversary, to some degree, is a good thing. I I know that sounds terrible, Uh, a one-year anniversary of a war that's still going on, but uh, Dr. Oderman, these two got a chance to meet visually, uh, but you know what? Now now you two both know each other's role in this conversation. So, uh, Dr. Ambrosio, give me your take of where it is a year. Uh, Now that we're into this a year,
2: where do we sit right now? Well, now we have uh, a clear year of perseverance by the Ukrainian people uh, with the uh, full backing of NATO. Um, Not everything that the Ukrainians want, but a tremendous amount of weapons, a tremendous amount of money being sent in. Uh, The Ukrainians are fighting. The Russians are on the back foot, though right now we're kind of in this weird period of uh, small, like this grinding offensive by the Russians in the East. And the Ukrainians building up for their own offensive once the weather turns. And that's kind of where we are right now is that both sides are kind of waiting for the weather to turn. Um, The Russians, though, they're also mobilizing more. So this late spring, early summer may actually be the beginning of more clarity on where this is going.
0: Uh, Kerry, when when I think of the weather in Ukraine, I think of the exact same thing that – that we have pretty much. We just went through uh, a situation where my pickup on the drive up told me it was 23 below. They're blowing up the power plants in Ukraine. Uh, I know you're still able to communicate with individuals there. Uh, Thomas Ambrosia just told you that, hey, the, the weather's going to dictate a lot of this. I want your take on that. I, I want your take on what it what it is on the ground there in relation to the weather. <sighs>
1: Well, at the zero line where there's real con- kinetic contact with Russian troops, there is weather's always going to play a part in Ukraine. And there's been enough people that have talked about the weight of tanks, et cetera, et cetera. But now we're also seeing some activity in the breakaway province of Moldova, Transnistria which um, makes me believe that they might be considering opening up another front. There's also troop buildup in Belarus. So there might be a distraction from the Russian part, but it could be waiting for the weather. The problem is the weapons that are being promised, promises are really big, but people aren't delivering yet. Just yesterday, it was announced that maybe the Abrams tanks, which might not be suited to the situation in Ukraine anyhow, might not make it until next year. All these leopards or leopards, as, you know, leopards, what the Germans say, these these main battle tanks, it's taking a long time to get them onto the field, too. And it might not be too little, but it might just be too late. I, I want to
0: throw the same question at both of you, because when we think of NATO, we think of Everything locally here, we think of the U.S. and its role. But I'm going to go with you, Dr. Ambrosio, first. uh, The the role that other countries in NATO have played. Speak to that a second, if
2: you would. Well, right now, um, yeah, we have these promises, these tanks that are going to hopefully be delivered. uh, But I'm not sure they're going to be as impactful as um, armored personnel carriers to actually have the Ukrainians be able to move uh, much more rapidly than the Russians can. So that actually may be more impactful than tanks. One of the problems that we're actually running into is an artillery shortage, that the West can't produce enough artillery to uh, replace what's being spent by the Ukrainians. Uh, so th- that's going to be something that's right now not a problem, but long term is we're starting to ramp up production. The Europeans are, but of course, the Europeans are so far behind in terms of military production in general. Uh, so that's going to be a part of the story. And there is a growing—it's—it's it's small, and part of the reason why Biden I think went to Ukraine was to shore up European support for the war, because there's a, a growing questioning of, of how long the Europeans are willing to to support it. Uh, Doctor Oderman, both of you have much a
0: much bigger view of the world. I mean, you do when when you look at what's happening in, in Ukraine. We think of it as the U.S. coming to their rescue. No boots on the ground. We don't want to get into World War III here, but we have really come to your rescue. I think oftentimes we don't think of what Germany has done, what France has done. What's the perception uh, with the people that you you still talk to about NATO as a whole?
1: It has to do a lot with controlling the narrative, and I'm. It makes sense that in America, you're talking about America's contribution. But if you look at Germany, who has come off very poorly in the media, they're actually the second largest donor. You look at Boris Johnson and his trips to Kiev, and even though he's not prime minister anymore in the U.K., um, they love the U.K. because of Boris Johnson. France has only done a small, small contribution, but is still looked upon very favorably. It's all about controlling the narrative. And Joel, you keep talking about how you don't want to get World War III started, but we have to rethink how we define war. We're always talking about war in terms that no longer apply. We mentioned before about how drones are entering you know, bringing in a whole new aspect, but in the United States, it really needs to shift the focus to hybrid warfare. I guess, I guess
0: what I'm, what I'm trying to get at and, and you, you can correct me on this is if you look at the role that FDR played in, in world war II, uh, he had a very isolationist country, and because he had an isolationist country, he could never get the country to do what he really felt we should do until the Japanese did what they did uh, at Pearl Harbor, and of course Germany declares war on us instantly. But that that being said, you know now it just feels so familiar because what we're doing is very similar to what we did. In World War II, with supplying the Brits with weapons and trying to get them all the equipment that we possibly could, and clearly having a side in the war. This time it's just much more visual. visual. Uh, and so I guess, Carrie, that's what I'm getting at.
1: Well, if there's a clear side here, and in the problem with saying that the United States is the, the number one player in this, it makes it turn into a prox- proxy war that makes it tr- just match the Kremlin's narrative. And that's where things get problematic, when we start using the same arguments that the Kremlin is using. And I think the United States needs to have a long discussion about hybrid warfare. And we've mentioned this a couple months ago. We've talked about how um, the influence in you on U.S. politicians from Russia is um finally being seen right now in the United States slowly and it's going to affect the US public opinion about the war.
0: Tom you ever always have had a really good understanding of what is going on on the ground in Russia. Uh and, and the history of Russia as a whole. The the and I I doubt poll numbers actually I doubt poll numbers here again now too but but in Russia they're saying that close to 80% of the people are supporting uh Vladimir Putin in this war against Ukraine. Do you believe that?
2: That's probably way high. But if you imagine the only media you're getting is, or almost, or most of the media you're getting is this constant stream from the Kremlin. Um, and if, and you're not hearing alternative voices, and many of those alternative voices have been forced to flee the country and not being able to, uh, you know, present uh, the alternative side. Uh, you, you can imagine that that's going to, over time, um, influence how people see this war. Also, Putin is very good at pressing the right buttons—the historical buttons that drive Russian narratives, going back decades, and one could even say centuries. So, I—I am not surprised that there are there would be a lot if you had a true poll. Um, people are also somewhat probably afraid to actually be honest um, in, in polls. So there's probably, you know, a lot of inflation there. But, yeah, I mean, it's this is something that is important, as I say, even to my students, to actually also understand Russia from its perspective, not saying their perspective is right, but to actually, like, read Putin's mm-hmm. speeches. Because that shows us how far this divide is between the two sides.
0: Dr. Oderman earlier pointed out that in in NATO's the, the benefits to NATO, one of those is which they know how the weapons do now. It's like the ultimate uh, testing ground. It, you know, in terms of advancing in terms of making better. Is that the same benefit for Russia? Because we we looked at this in the beginning and what we saw was very antiquated equipment. Uh very well or poorly maintained equipment. Has that changed in Russia?
2: Um, I think they're, they're still gonna, they're gonna be dragging stuff out of storage. Their uh, capacity to replace what they have is even far is far, far less than anything in the West. The, the real innovations that we're seeing for Russia is that the, is the use of, of pretty much Iranian drone technology, not even their own homegrown Iranian te- or, uh, drone technology. So I think that is but we're both learning from that. So I'm mm-hmm. not sure it helps Russia at all. Um, they're again. They're they're expending so much in terms of artillery, especially early on, that they were dragging their stock. They, what they can produce and produce is what they can use, and that's it. So
0: let me ask you both this: uh, it, when we come back, okay, if if tomorrow the U.S. was to give uh, Ukraine F-16s, tomorrow they get F-16s and they say go get them. Uh, This is where we're at, this position in the war. What do you think would happen? I'm just curious, on a world stage, what do you think would happen? And obviously we haven't used one word yet in this conversation that should have been brought in earlier, right? And that's China. China. Dr. Carrie Oderman is our guest. Again, uh, she was a TV anchor in Kyiv. Uh, this is the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Dr. Thomas Ambrosio is with us as well. He's a professor of political science at NDSU. We were talking before the, the break about what would be that next level. How would... China? How would Russia? How would, you know, anyone who might not be seen as on our side of this argument, uh, you know, Iran, how would all of those individuals look at it if the U.S. was to give F-16s to uh, the Ukrainian people? And I'm going to go with you first on that, Dr. Ambrosio.
2: Honestly, I mean, I think it'll help the Ukrainians. Um, There's there's a lot of logistical issues that would be involved um, in terms of training and, and upkeep for them. But how would other countries react? I I, I think they're not going to change how they're already reacting. It'll just, the the Russians will complain about escalation. uh, The Chinese will complain about escalation. But ultimately, they're really, at least Russia's not in a position to do anything more. I'm, as this war's gone along, I'm far less concerned about Russian escalation. Because at every every point that you would have thought they would have escalated. Now, obviously, they're committing horrible crimes and, and, you know, when you say escalation,
0: I think nuclear. That's that's That's, that's what that means, right?
2: Pretty much. Okay. Or um, uh, having a, a full-scale mobilization, which still may be happening. They're pulling people um, out of prisons. They are, well, yeah, they've, they're, they've started clearing out their prisons. But I don't think there's a whole lot more they're going to do. Now, if things go to, towards Crimea, then that would be a different discussion. But just sending in F-16s. Um, that's not, I think, going to change the calculus from Russia. Okay. They're going to do what they're going to ha- what they feel like they have to
0: do. I'm going to pose that same question to you, Dr. Oderman. What, what if, what if uh, the U.S. gave F-16s? Well, it, if in fact Dr. Ambrosio is right, then why the heck aren't we doing it?
1: We're not doing it because America wants to avoid an U.S. F-16 going over the border into Russia, because that would give then Russia the excuse to attack the United States and other allies. And I don't know if F-16s are that important anymore. We're talking about how warfare is changing. What about, you know, Patriot missile systems? What about getting more drones? I think Dr. Ambrose is right. The training with an F-16, you know, these Ukrainian pilots are, are used to flying MiGs and it that's a lot, uh, it's a huge learning curve. Um, but, You're right about talking about China. Just yesterday, there was a resolution at the UN Security Council. The UN has 193 members, and 141 said that what Russia is doing is wrong. But there were some abstentions, most notably China and India. And China's been walking a very, very fine line. And you've got to look at what's going on with China lately. Biden was in Kiev, but Yang Yi, the top Chinese diplomat was in Moscow that very same day. And China has grown its military exports to be the fourth largest in the world. So Russia is presenting a market for China right now. And some people in security circles talked about how the whole saying, yes, the Abrams tanks was a way of showing China, if you support Russia with lethal material, we can do this too. So that's been really interesting to watch this story develop. Well,
0: I and I don't, you know, I continue to make parallels to, uh, you know, what was the start of World War II. But you talked to any farmer out in my neck of the woods, and uh, the the stuff they had in the in the shelter belt behind the the house, all that old metal uh, went towards what was called the, you know, to to the good of the country uh, to be made into weapons. And what ended up happening? Uh, happening? Well, Japan used those weapons on us. So they're still mad about it. And they got a right to be mad about it. Uh, you know, and what ends up happening, that was the cause. That was what started things, or at least one of them, I should say. Well, it, it, I, I've got to go to a break. When we come back, uh, we'll continue this conversation right after this.
1: In the summertime.
0: Let me set the table for you again. Dr. Carrie Oderman is our guest. She is a North Dakota native that fled Kiev, uh, and she had been working at the time at Ukrainian TV as a TV anchor there. Dr. Thomas Ambrosio, a professor of political science at NDSU, well-traveled around this uh, world, this earth, and he is a research. His research interests include international relations and Russian foreign policy. I want to inject China into this conversation because a year later, one year since uh, the Russians invaded Ukraine, uh, a year later, China seems to be hovering as one of the biggest concerns out there. Even though many of the conversations the three of us have had, albeit separate, China was part of those conversations. But I guess what I'm asking you, uh, Dr. Ambrosio, is do you see China ending up playing a role in this war to where they're for lack of a better way of putting it active.
2: And this is an interesting situation because the United States has just released intelligence information saying that Chinese are thinking about supplying Russia with, with lethal aid, and that release was really a message from us to China, don't do it because then we're going to start slapping secondary sanctions on you. And the Chinese are going to have to make a real decision here. Um, I think they probably will not when all is said and done. Uh, they'll, sup- they'll help Russia economically. They'll help Russia move product. But ultimately, the, the the danger for them would be if we put sanctions on China, just imagine what that's going to do to the international economic system. That will have a bigger impact on us as well than uh, even the Russian sanctions.
0: Dr. Oderman, I'm going to put that same question to you. I want you to speak to China and where we're at a year later and and what fear there might be in ukraine that uh, hey now we're not just fighting russia we could be fighting china as well
1: well today is also china's day in the news not only did the u.s release this intelligence that they're thinking about supporting russia they just um presented a 12-point plan for um proposal for peace in ukraine china's trying to mediate i can't think of another time in history where that's happened. And to top it off, the European Commission has now officially said no more TikToks on anyone's phone. So 32,000 people that work for the European Commission are not going to be able to have TikTok on their phone. And these are all indications that China is very much a part of this conversation. It's kind of like the elephant in the room. Sometimes it's not addressed directly, but it is there and it's in consideration. Yeah. And if we slap sanctions on China, that's fine. But where are we going to get our chips from? in the yeah. last two or three and i don't mean potato chips no you know no no. So. i know <laughs> it, it,
0: it held up the car industry for forever i yeah. mean that's one yeah. of the, the bison administration's big initiatives is to make sure we're not reliant on china for that type of technology that being said we do a lot of business with china you guys we do a lot of business with china and i'm going to throw this one to you first uh dr oderman what what do you see china doing if we put those sanctions on it, if, if we tell them, you know what, we're done. We're not going to do business with you then. It, it, what? <laughs> to me, that smells all over again like Japan. I, I keep going back to that as a reference, but everybody forgets what we did that really ticked Japan off uh, prior to Pearl Harbor. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on that.
1: We've got to look at how power is defined nowadays and influence. We've got monetary influence, we've got technological influence, and I don't think it's in China's national interest anymore to try to get into a fight. They have prioritized other things. They're expanding markets all over the world. China has a huge interest right now in Africa, which might be part of the reason that they're kind of hedging their bets with Russia, because the... um, The BRICS group, the the group of like uh, South Africa, India, Brazil, countries that um, are traditionally thought of as, we don't say third world anymore, but we say global south, um, that they, um, they have close relations with Russia and China wants to also benefit from these relations in these emerging markets with their products. So this is the kind of the reason that China is being very cautious. I don't think it's in China's interest really to get the United States angry, but it's not in the United States' ang- interest to slap sanctions on China right now. either. Uh, I,
0: I want to kick that same thing to Dr. Ambrosia, though. What what do you see happening if the U.S. tries to send a message by taking away the ability for the United States to do business with China?
2: Well, that would obviously have a dramatic in, impact on the United States in terms of product, I think supply Chains are difficult now. Imagine what it would be like with that. Um, again, I also I agree that, uh, that China is really not in China's interest. And in many ways, a weaker Russia is actually good for China because that gives China more leverage over Russia to get what it wants, which is a strategic ally to its north, but also talk about being China's uh, fuel, fuel uh, or gas station. Uh, both natural gas and oil. So then again, we don't know what's going on inside uh, the president of China's head. So he may begin to see this as somehow some Russian defeat as kind of an existential threat to his geopolitical position. I don't think so, but then again, I'm not living in his head and I don't think I really want to.
0: What I've been reading this week is that he's not as powerful, or some might say, as what everyone thought he was. Uh, that there's people behind, not behind him, but as part of the country that want to be far more aggressive and they're pushing him forward on that. I guess I, I hate to go backward in time. I don't mind going backward in time. We, we keep talking about NATO, 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 that that one of the things that Russia was afraid of the most is that Ukraine was going to be a member of NATO, which I don't think that was there. But that that being said, if you go back in time and you look at Vietnam, and you look at Korea, the one thing that was a driving force behind all of that was communism. And if you look at China and you look at Russia, you look at two neighbors that didn't always do the kumbaya here. They weren't always very close friends. And so is this potentially about, with China, communism? And Dr. Oderman, I'm going to throw that one to you first.
1: I think that we made a mistake trying so hard to say communism was the worst thing in the world because there's this colonial thinking where, you know, what our ideas of how the world functions are the best. And if we try to understand China and China's communist party through our lens, we're not going to understand it. So we need to maybe change the paradigm a little bit and say, What's going on in China isn't okay. We wouldn't want to live there, but we'll let them China does China as long as, you know, they stay within certain norms. And I think that's kind of what China was trying to do with this 12 point proposal for peace show that, you know, everyone can get along. The first point in their proposal that they presented at the UN was talking about sovereignty and territorial integrity. And they were doing this probably because, you know, what we do in our house is fine. Don't mess with us, and we won't mess with you. Maybe that's their new foreign policy.
0: Uh, I'm going to kick the same thing to you, though, uh, Doctor Ambrosio. When you when you think of just whether or not we've gone back, and the reason that China is now aligning themselves with Russia is, in fact, because of how governments are structured.
2: In other words, communism. Well, I don't think it's actually. I'm going to say it's communism as much as authoritarianism. I think we've moved beyond this kind of communism capitalism paradigm. Uh, China itself. They call themselves a the communist party, but it's really about authoritarianism. So there is a strategic a partnership between the two. They do see geopolitically; they see the world through a similar lens. They see an overbearing West. They see the uh, the idea of kind of demo- spreading or spreading democracy as a threat to their sovereignty. And China has been very consistent about saying sovereignty is all important. And also territorial integrity, because they have their own secessionist issues, and they, of course want to forestall any Taiwanese declaration of independence. So I would say that the, the the government systems matter matter only to the extent that they see the West as kind of trying to erode their sovereignty through democratization. And it's really about geopolitics at its core.
0: Dr. Thomas Ambrosio is our guest here on News and Views, as is Dr. Carrie Oderman. Little background. Uh, Dr. Oderman, uh, the news anchor in Kiev, uh, making her life and her family and raising her children in Ukraine. One year anniversary of the Ukrainian war today. Dr. Ambrosio is a professor of political science at NDSU. Uh, His research interests include international relations with Russian foreign policy. Um, I said text in a question if you had it. It happened. Uh, Dr. Tom, there seems to be a ramping up by the Chinese of unsafe military aircraft encounters with U.S. aircraft. Is this just saber rattling or has there been a shift in policy?
2: I think this is largely kind of the game that we play um, where we are operating in close proximity to each other. We are spying on them. They're spying on us. My only concern is that we don't seem to have the well-established red lines that we had with the Soviet Union that there are certain things we can and cannot do. And that like, even this, this Chinese balloon, we don't want to go down, down that rabbit hole, but even that seemed to be almost a step that you know, we had to work those things out with the Soviet Union early on the cold war. And I think we have to hopefully be in a position where we can work out like here's what you can and can't do. And we'll have the same.
0: Uh, Dr. Oderman, I mentioned your family uh, and, and raising children. I'm, where do you see that going? They're going to, I mean, they're going to have to live in that world. Uh, Either that or they're welcome to come back here and they can live with us tomorrow. Uh, I'm sure Belfield would welcome you with open arms. But the perception that they're going to have in Russia or being from a war-torn country. I mean, you're raising children in the middle of this.
1: Yeah, I've got a 10-year-old that's afraid of Vladimir Putin, which is a weird thing to be afraid of. You did that show on Gordon Call last month. And last week, and I and I told you that was used to scare me when I was a kid, but now my kids are afraid of Vladimir Putin. And it's been a huge adjustment. And we are part of the 4 million people that had to leave Ukraine for safety. And you have to imagine that there are 4 million people, mostly women and children, who are being um, pushed into situations that aren't real easy. Now, I, I fell pretty softly. My husband's German. We had a place to go. We can speak the language. Um, but my kids had to go to new schools. We had to find a place to live, all of these things. There are Ukrainians here whose children are going to schools where they don't speak the language. They're in a culture they don't understand. And there's going to be a huge generational disconnect mm-hmm. between um, these kids that have left and you know these women. And also there's the question... There was a survey, I want to say, sometime a couple months ago, and about 80 or 90% of Ukrainians do want to return. But the longer the war continues, the higher the likelihood is that they don't want to. When you've been torn out of a situation and you have to struggle to find your feet again, find a job, learn a language the likelihood of you going back lessens each year and we're going to have the situation then in ukraine where some of the um a whole generation is going to have ptsd because of the war another another part of younger people are not going to know ukraine as they should because they had to spend several years outside of ukraine and Um, there are a lot of things that have to be thought of about what's going to happen after the war. And this is one of them, the reintegration of Ukrainian refugees back into their country, how to deal with, with mental health issues. And I know it sounds strange to talk about these things on the one year anniversary of the war that's still going on, but here in Europe, there are lots of people planning for this already.
0: I've got about, or maybe actually a little less than a minute that I can get your answer on this, but uh, in terms of, the perception, there's a lot of people in this country that still believe uh, that the reason that this happened, the Russian invasion, is because Russia saw a weak U.S. They blame the Biden administration for that. And I'm wondering if those uh, circles go out there, if if there's conversations about that. And I'm going to go with you first, Carrie.
1: I think of Barack Obama's reaction to Crimea being annexed in 2014 Maybe it's what started it. But, and, you know, Dr. Ambrosia studies Russia, and that means he studies Vladimir Putin. In 2007, at the Munich Security Conference, Putin revealed his plan. He said what he was going to do. Nobody wanted to believe him. So it's not about Biden or Bush or Obama or Clinton being weak. It's because this was part of Putin's plan.
2: Dr. Ambrosia, absolutely. That 2007 Munich. Security conference speech, Uh, if you want to understand Putin's thinking, read it once. If you want to try to understand it even better, read it twice, because he told us everything. He told us the way he sees the West, the way he sees the world. And his speeches have become a little bit more unhinged as he's gone along. Certainly his his State of the Nation address was kind of unhinged, but this is something that, that we don't do ourselves any benefit by not trying to see the world through others' eyes. Not that we have to agree with them, but... To understand where they're coming from can help us avoid problems in the future.